Well, each year during the fall season, I've been committed to preaching through the books of the Hebrew Scriptures, or what is commonly known as the Old Testament. And I do that for several reasons. I mean, just one of the biggest reasons is it's two-thirds of the Bible, so you'd be missing a lot if you didn't actually go through the Hebrew Scriptures very often. Um, The Hebrew Scriptures also reveal a lot about God's character, and they tell us a lot about who we are and why we're created and what we're created to be and to do. But maybe the most important reason that I'm committed to preaching through the Hebrew scriptures each year is for the simple fact that they are the scriptures of Jesus. They are the scriptures of Paul. Like there is no other Bible, there's no New Testament written for Jesus and Paul. I mean, when he says, when he's quoting the Bible, he's quoting the Old Testament. And the Hebrew scriptures all point toward Jesus as the fulfillment, as the final destination of what they are pointing toward. Now, if you look at your bulletin, if you ever look at that and you see the sermon text and title, you'll notice something different this year, and that is that I'm not preaching the Old Testament per se. I'm actually still going through Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, which is in the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament. It just so happens that this particular section of the Sermon on the Mount is a set of teachings that directly stems from the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, from many of the Ten Commandments and other commandments in the Hebrew Bible. And last week, we focused on Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And in that section, Jesus declared that he did not come to do away with the Law and the Prophets. He didn't come to abolish the Hebrew Scriptures, but he did come to fulfill them. Jesus gives six examples of these fulfillers, of different ways that he fulfills the ethical standards in the Hebrew Scriptures. And as you'll see throughout this series, he has fulfilled the ethical law in three main ways. First of all, Jesus fulfills or he affirms the validity of the ethics of God. Far from doing away with the law and the prophets, uh, he's going to show us God's heart for us, for humanity, that lies in the root of the law and the prophets. Second, Jesus is going to fulfill these ethical uh, commands in the Hebrew scriptures by being the only person, the only human being to ever live them out perfectly. Like no one's been able to actually follow the commandments except Jesus. And so he fulfills them in his life. But third, and this is the so what for you and me, third, Jesus begins to fulfill the ethical law by empowering his disciples to live it out. And and if you've begun following Jesus, maybe you've been baptized and you say, Jesus is my Lord, and you participate in communion and you worship him, then you're one of those people that Jesus is saying, hey, I'm inviting you to live out this teaching. We're going to be far from perfect, but I hope you'll notice, first of all, maybe a little bit of like, oh my gosh, that's hard to do. But here's the big part. Notice the dignity in God inviting you and I to live this out. When we live the way that Jesus calls us to live, we are part of his fulfilling work. Now, the first six of these fulfillers is where I want to turn our attention to tonight, and it's Matthew 5, 21 through 26. I'm just going to read that for you, and that's the text where we're going to be rooted in right now. Jesus says, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, 
and everyone who commits murder shall be guilty before the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister shall be also guilty before the court. And whoever says you good for nothing to someone else shall be guilty before the council or the Sanhedrin or the Supreme Court. And whoever says to another person, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery Gehenna, the garbage dump, the hell. Truly I say to you, if you are offering an offering at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your offering, like right there at the temple, leave it right there at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother or sister. Make friends quickly with your opponent in law while you're with them on the way so that you won't be handed over to the officer and then to the judge and then put into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you've paid up the last cent. Jesus, this sounds incredibly difficult. and We want to understand what it is that you're saying to us. We're, we're so far distant from your time and culture in which you said these words, but we also know that you're living and active today. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our minds and our hearts to receive what you have for us today. Amen. All right, before we dive into like the meaning of words and phrases, I just want to like take one step back, like a just pan out for a minute and see something cool that's going on here. All throughout scripture, it is God and God alone who gives covenant commands to his people. He gives covenant commands to people like Moses and then Moses mediates those or tells everybody, hey, this is what God said and now I'm telling you what God said. Moses is not God, Moses speaks what God says. And he speaks through the prophets who, who take the law and, and, and inspired by God, they say, this is how we should live out that law in today's day and age. But in every point in scripture, people have understood that the laws and the ethics concerning the people of God came from God through people, right? It's always God communicating to us through people. Now note the significance of when Jesus says, you've heard that the ancients were told. That means that the ancients were told from God through the scriptures, but I say to you. Jesus is placing himself not as a mere interpreter of God's commands, but as the commander of the commands. And at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of chapter seven, the crowds are going to say, or the narrator tells us that the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught as one as having authority and not as their scribes, who are like the Bible scholars. They'd never heard anything like this. No one was saying things like, you've, you've heard God said this, but I say. You've heard the scriptures said, but I say. If you've read these texts before, or maybe you're here checking out, like, who is this Jesus person? I'm kind of interested, so I'm going to come to church and check it out. Know this that we are not dealing merely with someone who claimed to be a great teacher or an expositor of the law or even a very good man. We are encountering someone who claims to be the incarnate God, God in human flesh. 
Now, what you do with that information is always the question. It's always God putting the ball back in your court. But I just wanted to make that explicit, that there's no two ways around it. Nobody is talking about God's law like Jesus is. He's saying, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. So what is Jesus actually saying? Well, let's, let's dig into that. First of all, he affirms the law, one of the Ten Commandments. God prohibits murder. In the Ten Commandments, there's this commandment. It says, thou shalt not murder. Had to go King James there because it sounds better at thou shalt not. And he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court or guilty before the court. Jesus' audience at that point would have wholeheartedly agreed. That's exactly what the law says. And the court here, liable to the court or guilty to the court, that is, that's language that means judgment. If you murder someone, you will incur God's judgment. The one who murders faces judgment. That's the law. But now Jesus is going to kind of peel the curtain back a little bit and reveal the heart behind God's law. Jesus knows, like many of us do, that behind murder and revenge, there is anger, there is hatred, there's a warped nature of the human heart. And so he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister shall also be guilty before the court, shall also incur judgment. Anyone been angry today? I have. Now, let's dig into this a little bit deeper. In Greek, which is the language that this is written in, there are two ways to say anger, and the first one is thumos. Would you like to say that? Thumos. Yeah, it kind of sounds like a Harry Potter thing, like thumas, and then something would light up. Thumas is, you're putting the, the connection, it's probably where we get the word thermal. It means heat, and, and it connotes the idea of something that flashes up like when you, when you burn straw or dry paper or something, and it just, it flares up, and then it goes out, and it's quick. It's a reactionary anger, thumas, and that is not the word that Jesus uses in this statement. Which brings us to the word that he does use, which is orge, which looks a lot like ogre with a couple words mixed, or a couple letters mixed up. Ogres are mean through and through, and this form of the verb orge is in the, in the passage, it's a participle. And what that means is that it's refer referencing a kind of anger that is long-lasting. It, it's the kind of anger that is part of a person, that kind of sits below the surface and comes out quickly. It's the kind of anger that's fostered and molded over and kept aflame by the person that holds it by adding fuel to it and going over things in your mind over and over again. Now earlier in the service we heard the story of Cain and Abel. Cain's ego was wounded because God accepted the sacrifice of his brother but not his. And the story implies that Abel brought the best of himself as an offering, but Cain brought only a common offering, not something with his whole heart. And before Cain murders Abel, he becomes angry. And God reaches out to him before he does anything worse, and he warns him, he warns Cain that he has a choice, that he can change his perspective, that he can seek the way of life, or he can give in to his anger and be mastered by it. 
Fostering that kind of anger, holding onto it, is dangerous to ourselves and to other people. Why? Because I've never met a person who can wield their anger properly. We might think our anger is righteous and well-informed. We might even think that we have a right to be angry, and sometimes we do about lots of things, but our sin nature distorts anger, and it, it can become intoxicating, and it can, it can turn from something that starts off as righteous anger and quickly moves into self-righteous anger. And the thing about anger is it makes us feel powerful, and when we start to feel powerful when we're wounded, it's addictive and hard to let go. When we begin to harbor anger towards other people, what happens is we begin to dehumanize them. And we see this played out a lot in the last year with things like the political spectrum or masters, anti-masters, vaxxers, anti-vaxxers, and how can that person possibly think that? And then we begin to make them less than human in our minds. Jesus goes on. Whoever says to his brother or sister, you good for nothing, will be guilty before the council, the Sanhedrin. It's just another way in parallelism of saying, you're also guilty. Whoever says, you good for nothing. And the word here is racha. That's the word behind good for nothing in English. It's an Aramaic term that, uh, that people would use. And it seems to mean something like empty. Like you brainless, you empty head, you empty of value, Raka. It's labeling someone as stupid, as insignificant, as unworthy of consideration. This type of dehumanization is cause for guilt, Jesus says. And finally, he warns us against those who call their sisters or brothers fools. Literally, moros in Greek. It's this word that has a double connotation. On the one hand, it means morally lacking. And on the other hand, it means religiously lacking. So in the Psalms, for example, the moros or the fool is the person who denies that God exists. By, co- by calling somebody a fool, you're attacking their moral character and their relationship with God himself. You're making judgments on one of God's image bearers that you have no right to make. And the guilt incurred by that is enough to face the judgment as well. I think what Jesus is saying is just because we haven't shot someone or stabbed them or taken their life breath, it doesn't mean that we're innocent of murdering relationships. Jesus isn't calling anger the same thing as murder, but he is addressing the sickness of the angry heart. And if it doesn't always lead to murder, then it slowly kills those around us when we harbor this kind of dehumanizing anger towards other people. Now, why does God even take all of this so seriously? Well, because according to the first book of the Bible, the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, every human being, including yourself, is made in the image of God. And so when you and I dehumanize a person, we're diminishing their honor and glory and diminishing the God who created that person in his image. It's not our role to judge other people.
I mean, this is a tall ask. If you struggle in any way with anger, you know how debilitating this can be. What, what do we do? What hope is there for us to live out this insane ethic of God? What Glenn Stassen says, actually, anger can be a good thing. Anger is actually kind of neutral. It's a diagnostic tool that God has given us because it signals to us that something is wrong. So when things are wrong in the world, uh, take racial injustice, right? We ought to be angry over that. That ought to frustrate us when things are wrong. Uh, Anger can be a diagnostic tool that tells you when someone is mistreating you. It's kind of like saying, well, that, that crossed a line. That's not right. But anger can also tell us places in our own hearts that need healing. Part of the journey that I've been on over the past few years is the painstaking discipline of paying attention to my own reactions and writing about them and processing that. Why do I get angry when people say certain things? And is my anger stronger? Is my reaction stronger than the situation warrants? When I recognize that it is, I know that there's something else going on at the surface. Why was I triggered in that way when that person said something that wasn't that big a deal? Oftentimes, trauma from the past will set us off and will trigger us in the present, and you can just, you know what I'm talking about if you know what I'm talking about. That person who sounded a little bit too much like your dad or your, your, your mom who's over, you know what it is? Like, hmm, why did I react that way? People who say or act even by accident like those who have caused us harm in the past will often incur our internal anger. Maybe our external anger if we're not careful. And that will happen and it can actually increase over time unless we get help. We're not going anywhere for a little while. Take a, take a moment. <laughs> take a moment right now and consider what is it that makes you angry? Like the kind of anger that's, that's not healthy. Is there a pattern? What might that anger be telling you? If we begin to look at anger as a diagnostic, If you've identified a source of recurring anger or maybe a trigger for you, what would Jesus invite you to do about it? Well, let me help. I think the place to start is always with honesty and humility. It's no accident that before, well before Jesus gets into all of these hard, you've heard that it was said, but I says, before he did any of that other stuff, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Being part of the kingdom of heaven has never been about your outward behavior. It is about Jesus. It's the gospel. It starts with the good news. And Jesus wants us to flourish in life. And so he points our eyes upward toward the life that God has for us in his kingdom, towards the potential of what life can be like and what it's going to be like. And he says to us, hey, repent, turn around, 
because the way you've been living is going to lead you to death. I want to invite you toward a, a, a path of flourishing. And so we've always got to hear Jesus's hard commands in that light. That is always an invitation to more life, not someone waving their finger at you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And once we begin that path, see, we are inevitably going to come to terms with our own sin, our own struggle. Maybe those are outdated terms. Our own inability to be the kinds of people we really want to be. And it's at these moments, no matter how frequently they are, uh, occur in our lives, that we turn to Jesus asking for help and forgiveness. And we can do that with confidence because he's the same one that says, blessed are you when you're poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. There's no limit on the time. In fact, he told his disciples one time, like, how many times do I have to forgive that guy? Well, 70 times seven. So you take the perfect number seven and then you multiply it by 10, and then you say, times that times another perfect number. It's like basically forever. Forgive people forever. That's the same God who forgives you forever and ever and ever. But that's not all, and it's important that you hear this, because I believe firmly that it is spiritually abusive to say, you know, all you've got to do is pray about it. that all you've got to do is just get on your knees and just give it to God and it'll just, that's all you got to do. I believe it would be spiritually abusive to suggest that simply, only, merely praying about it will heal you completely and finally. Most of us will need help multiple times in our lives. It would be simply amazing if you've lived a full life, like, I don't know, Make it to 60, 70, 80, 90. If you've never visited a doctor or a dentist, that would be, I'm only 46. I don't even, can't even count how many times I've like been to a physical therapist, had stuff done on my teeth, had like casts and splints and minor surgeries even. Like I, I, I'm looking out, I, you're all in the same boat. Like I, sorry, I know too much about you, but um, <laughs> it would be miraculous, right? But for some reason we think like, yeah, I can probably get through life with never seeing a counselor, as if our emotions and our, our, our interior life isn't as important as a broken leg or a broken arm. That's insane. And no one would think that you have less faith if we prayed for your broken leg and also took you to the ER, like in the same motion. Why do we have this separation with mental health and with emotional trauma? Forgiveness and seeking God is foundational. I'm not doing away with that one. That's why I'm a preacher of the gospel and not a counselor. But we have to respect that deep trauma takes time to heal and we need help. And we don't have less faith when we pray for a person with a broken arm and take them to the doctor, right? The same ought to be true with a person with a broken part of their story. And the answer can be prayer and the help of, of a skilled counselor and maybe a spiritual director and maybe it's just some pastoral counseling, but it's, 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 there's a team aspect of it. And I want you to hear loud and clear that if you want help, that I will both pray for you. You're gonna get that side with me and I will listen to you and I will know enough to know when I need to refer you to someone who is an expert in helping you heal from past trauma because it takes a team approach. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gets our attention by, by convicting nearly every one of us about our anger. And if you're there and you're like, I just don't get angry, can I just say something? The number one cause in the United States of depression, especially in men, is repressed anger. <laughs> so if you think you don't get angry, it's gonna come out. Think of your emotions as tectonic plates. Like, there's pressure that builds up, and it's gonna come out. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying, let's talk about it. So he gets our attention, and then he goes a step further, and he shows us what a flourishing life might look like. And Jesus suggests that not only do we deal with our anger issues, but that we help each other as well. I thought that song was fantastic that we sang earlier, the shelter you song, and it was very much about the community of God being a shelter, being a help, being a safe place for one another. And so what Jesus says is deal with your own stuff, but then also if you know someone who might be angry with you, well, like, don't make them take the initiative. Like, maybe you go and try and smooth that over and, and be a reconciler. Jesus gives two examples, and they cover both the religious world, which is what we would talk about, like a church community, and they, rec- and they cover the rest of life, like everything else. Uh, they cover life with the people gathered for worship, and they cover life with people dispersed all around the world in our workplaces and schools and neighborhoods and all of those places. And take note that both of these examples place human relationships as a premium. A lot of times, you know, my upbringing, it was very much like you and God, that's what matters. I I totally believe that you and God matter. Just read the Bible and if he calls people out who say they love God, but don't love other people. Like, it's actually a paradox. And John, in, in his epistles, say you can't say you love God and hate other people, right? So, so there's a both-and aspect here. So in Jesus' first example, he, he, he looks at a person who's taken the time to, uh, to come to the temple. And where he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, some scholars say it's a two- or three-day journey to actually get to the temple in Jerusalem. So you've traveled for a couple days, you've bought your, your, all, your, your offering, maybe your lamb or your doves or your grain offering, whatever it is you're there to offer for, and you're at the altar and you're gonna offer this thing and you, and you realize somebody has something against you back home, two days, three days back home. And it's, it's hyperbole, like this is never gonna happen, but Jesus says, leave your offering right there. <laughs> Bleeding, bleating, not bleeding. <laughs> uh, the sheep or whatever it is, you, you purchase it, you travel all that way, just leave it. Because what's more important than all the religious stuff is that you actually live it out in your life. Leave your offering there before, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come. So he's not saying, hey, you know what? You don't need the religious aspect. Just go be nice to people and that's how you... No, it's both things. Worshiping God is more than sentimental feelings. It has to be lived out. It's just like uh, in the the Beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, right? It's not blessed are those who long for peace or blessed are those who wish there was peace in the world or, you know, it's blessed are those who actually work toward making peace. 
If there's a problem between two image bearers of God, then the truest act of worship would be to try as much as it depends on you, because we all know that there's crazy people in our families who can't be reasoned with. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, but like this is all high-level stuff. We gotta nuance it out, and that's where pastoral work happens. These are the high-level things. These are the ideals, and then after sermons, then we talk about the reals, don't we? We get in the trenches and say, well, okay, well, how does that work out with my, my mother-in-law or with my sister who hasn't talked to me in six years? You know, that's where we get in the trenches, but, but the ideal is as much as it depends on you, if, so, if somebody, if maybe you've harmed someone or offended them in a way, um, go to them and see if you can't make amends and repair that. In the power of the, his life-changing spirit, we're shown how we can help other people. If they're stewing in their anger and we might be the cause of that, then we can go and at least try. If our brother or sister has something against us, we're to go, try as best we can to be reconciled. And it can pl- take place in two arenas. The church, right? If you can think of another follower of Jesus that you may have uh, offended or hurt through a word or through an action or through an inaction, then go. Everything might be just fine, but what's the harm in reaching out? Ask Jesus, Lord, have I done something or said something that needs to be apologized for? It's, it's about being proactive. And this, the second arena, of course, is in your social circle, outside of the church family, your neighbors and coworkers, fellow students, maybe even kids, brothers and sisters at home, which they are part of the family of God, but it's sort of a different thing. Like, we know how we push each other's buttons. These are people that might be your sparring partners on social media is like is a thing now that Jesus, I don't know if he anticipated that, but that's a whole crazy new world. You know, there's plenty to be angry about. There's far too many ways for us to step in it metaphorically with other people. Like the more we put ourselves out there and our opinions, the more chance we have to be inconsiderate and unnuanced and a jerk. <laughs> If we took seriously Jesus' call to make amends with those that we've caused to be angry for the wrong reasons, wouldn't we do a lot more peacemaking in the world? Plus, if we had to apologize all the time, we might just be more careful with the things we say and the way that we say them. I think Jesus is on to something here. Would you pray with me? Jesus, these are are hard words because what makes us angry gets to those wounded parts of our very identity and the parts that make us feel raw and vulnerable and exposed. I thank you that this teaching is in the context of your grace. And I thank you for the dignity of calling us to a better life than the one that we're often stuck in. And I pray especially for my sisters and brothers who feel stuck in a cycle of anger, who feel stuck in a cycle of conflict, 
and that we can't imagine a way out. We can't imagine the other party being amiable. We can't imagine a life in which we are not striving. And, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would break in through the cracks in our heart and begin to breathe life on a different vision, on the possibility of what kingdom life looks like. And I pray for the courage to take next steps toward healing.